Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode six or part six of the Identity Series. This is what I'm titling, Be Here Now, with a question mark at the end of it. So, Be Here Now, question mark. First, uh, two notes. One, uh, I mentioned last time a, a book on the Enlightenment, and I gave the wrong title. Uh, the title is supposed to be The Creation of the Modern World, and the author is Roy Porter. So it's a good, interesting book on the Scottish and British Enlightenment in contrast and comparison to the Continental Enlightenment. So excellent, excellent book on the Enlightenment if you're interested in that kind of thing. So that's Creation of the Modern World. I got the title wrong. Sorry about that. Uh, and to the late September class, 9, 10th, and 11, I think, is now sold out. So that one's all sold out. There's a few spots left in the earlier September class, and there may be one in the June one because someone might be switching. So, But the late one sold out, June one probably sold out, and then the September, early September has, I think, two or three slots left, maybe four, but it depends if somebody switches. So anyway, stay tuned. Thank you to everybody who has signed up and who has shown interest. I really appreciate it. All right, so um, identity part six. Now, some people have mentioned that, wow, this has kind of taken a negative turn where it's, you know, all problems, problems, problems. So I'll, I'll tell you this, only two more, this, this uh, episode and one more on the difficulties that we face and the challenges and then some of the responses, I don't know, solutions is probably too strong. Some of the possible responses that it, p people can use if they so choose to respond to this environment that has sort of befuddled us uh, in the modern world. Um, so, yes, so will be this one, which will, uh, and the next one. Boy, and if you think this one is depressing, wait for the next one. Good Lord. But, so stay tuned for the unexciting, depressing uh, progress we make on the problems that we face in forming an identity. My title is Be Here Now because one of the responses you hear to many of the problems that were that I've raised is the sort of classic, you know, be here now or other formulations, be in the moment and so on and so forth. And I think this is an excellent question. Um, the problem is it is not a solution. In fact, what it really does is it highlights the problem. Philosophically speaking, the question of being, to be, right, there's a whole field of philosophy, ontology, a huge swamp, don't go in there because no one ever comes out alive, waving at you, Heidegger, um, you know, so it's sort of the, the, uh, an unbelievably complex world of uh, insoluble problems, this whole question of be, uh, so it's not an answer, it's, it's the worst possible philosophical question, perhaps, um, and then for our purposes and for this lecture, the here and the now. This is what I want to focus on is the where is the here and when is the now because that's part of what got blown up. And again, starting with our primate ancestors and starting with the here half of this question, um, they had a very defined here because they had a territory. Most primate ancestors or, or of our primate ancestors were territorial and certainly most of our early uh, hunter-gatherers and these sorts of people uh, our early human groups were territorial as well. Even the nomadic uh, peoples were nomadic within a territory. And so um, they knew intimately through their whole lives, usually one relatively small area. So even our primates had this capacity to think outside of the bounds that they could see immediately. They, they understood it. They had an intuition of, of what was happening out there. They knew when certain fruits in certain places would be ripening, these kinds of things. But why? Because they tended to tour their territory very regularly, if not daily, then, um, you know, systematically, weekly maybe. 
Uh, now, of course, the, the territory would move over time. It would change. It would meld. You know, other creatures might come in or other territory or other creatures might threaten them. And, you know, so it wasn't totally static, but it was very stable, very knowable, but it was also larger than just the immediate confines. So they had a sense of a larger world, but it was a very slightly larger world, and it was one that they were intimately familiar with. Of course, welcome to the modern world. And what's been happening over the last several hundred years is the scale of the world has been increasing at a phenomenal rate. In fact, much more quickly than we've been able to adapt. So when you're living in a village in rural France or anywhere, rural China, it, world, it doesn't matter, you're in a rural village, you're going to hear some news from the outside. You're going to become aware of events that happen a mile away, 10 miles away, maybe 100 miles away. But notice there's going to be a, a time lag because the fastest the news can travel is how fast someone can walk. And there's also going to be an interest lag. If you only get news about something every once in a while, then, you know, like, oh, well, that's interesting or you don't care. So you had sort of an information, very low environment, and you had a world in which people lived, again, very small scale. They could comprehend their village and a few miles around where the farms were and maybe the people in the next village every once in a while something would happen with them and you'd have a fair and you'd meet those people that you had met a year ago and find out what was going on there. But generally speaking, they had a very limited concept of here. They, you know, this is why nationalism took a while to catch on because people were like, I'm not, I'm, like I mentioned last time, I'm from a very specific location. What is this concept of, of, of that's bigger than here? Ah, the, all kinds of things that have, have then, of course, happened. One, you get the expansion of the merchant trade. Remember, merchants are always been viewed suspiciously in, in history because for one reason is where are they? Where are they from? Where are they going? They've gone to strange places we don't know about, doing things we don't understand with people we've never met. And so they're always very interesting. People are always interested in merchants, but also very suspicious because they're not from here. And we don't really know where their here is because they keep moving around. This makes them you know, untrustworthy. And, but those merchants go out and come back and bring pepper or the crusaders went out and discovered the, you know, that there was a civilization out there that, that, that had been in existence for a long time that was in the Holy Land, right? And all of a sudden the world starts growing. And one of the biggest versions of that is when the new world was discovered, when, when, when the Europeans realized like, hey, there's this whole huge landmass out there populated by millions of people and they've got their own thing going on. And this blew everybody's mind because if you were sort of moderately educated at that time and you had some sense, I mean, look, the maps were terrible at this point. I mean, if you look at early maps, they're terrible. They just did not have a good concept of the world yet. And so, but now they're like, they're kind of had a sense of Europe. They kind of, you know, some of the, there's what's, there's some countries over there, Russia's out there someplace. We don't know what's on the other side of Russia because no one ever goes there. And, you know, the, Gibraltar and, you know, they, they had some landmarks and they understood some things, but, but it, the notion that out there you could find a whole another like land, I mean, it just blew everybody's mind. I mean, they just could not believe it. And it made the world much, much bigger. And that <clears throat> expansion has never stopped. 
in science, we've been we've been growing the, the the world and the universe. Oh, you know the Earth. We go. Oh, the Earth is the center of the universe. People did not think this. People thought their village was the center of the universe. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh no, the Earth isn't even the center of the universe. The Earth goes around the sun. Oh man, wait a second. So now the sun is important. Now the sun is a thing I got to think about. And and slowly but surely this expansion has been going and it's never stopped. In the modern media environment, of course, where is our here? We can communicate with people everywhere in the world. We can see visually what's going on with them. We can read about them. We can see places everywhere. But when you do that, how do you know where here is? Where is your territory? And wherever you are now, you can think about, well, I could be someplace else. And so it creates a couple of confusions, which are not in any way um, easy to, to reconcile. And one is, no matter where you are, you can think of being someplace else. And in fact, you can probably get there. I mean, with you know, some exceptions, there's closed countries, North Korea, tourism board doesn't seem to be functioning that well. But, you know, these sorts of, of opportunities are there. And so wherever you are, you could be someplace else, someplace else that you know about. People didn't used to want to go other places, in part because they just didn't know about other places. Not only did they not have the opportunity to travel, they didn't have the knowledge of something that would make them want to get out there and go, oh, so, you know, all the migration to the new world, when they told them, look, you can go to this magic land where land is free, because we stole it from the natives, of course, uh, people were like, what? Are you serious? Really? Holy cow, that's amazing. Let's give that a go. hundred years before, there was no such land. There was no place. There was no opportunity even mentally to even ponder that concept. Didn't exist because they didn't know. And so, you know, your spaces were much more enclosed. Well, now we're, they say, okay, oh, we're a global citizen. This is a completely and totally unhelpful concept. Because where, if you're a global citizen, where are you? Oh, I'm on the earth. You know, that doesn't narrow it down very much. It really doesn't help me have a sense of place, have a place that I can build my identity on. And again, you knew as a primate where your part of your membership of the tribe was because you knew that you went with them every day or every once in a while around your territory. When you were in a village, you knew where you were supposed to be and you belonged there because you had always been there and you had visited all kinds of, 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 of places. Um, there's a great uh, moment in the Lord of the Rings where Frodo and... Um, his assistant Samwise, Samwise, right? Yeah, are, are 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 off on their big adventure, and Sam stops and says, "Oh my goodness! If I take one more step, I'll be further from home than I've ever been." And and, and for I think Tolkien was trying to underline the notion that oh these these Hobbity characters they they really stay close to home. They're very inward looking, and they're very and it's, it's something entrancing about that idea. But we also tend to demean it. We also, oh, well, but how else do you develop a sense of place unless you're somewhere? And if the where you are is what you pay attention to. But wherever we are, we have a cultural tendency and bias, A, to think about other places and to think that we're supposed to think about other places and to think we're supposed to travel to other places. Um, the, oh, travel expands the mind. It does, you know, potentially, if your mind is open to expansion. But it also discomfits you to a certain extent. 
And that notion of, okay, I'm here, but I could be there. And I know about those people. If you know about people everywhere, what are you supposed to do? Are, is their here part of your here? If you have friends someplace, um, I've friends in Atlanta and there was some big riots and such in Atlanta, not far from where they lived. And I thought, oh, you know, so when I hear about that, I go, oh, so there, my here sort of includes a little neighborhood in Atlanta. And that's bizarre, right? Because it's not really my neighborhood. I really don't know anything about it too much, but I do know some people who live there. I've been there, walked around. I'm somewhat familiar with it. What? What? Right? How do I respond to that? Does it? How does this? And, and notice this placelessness creates an unnerving sense. And then within this concept of of this massive exposure to a lot of possible notions of here, is our tendency to be fairly nomadic. Um, Americans are peculiarly bad about this. I talk about this in another lecture, but one of the things Americans are, are peculiar about is moving all the time. But, but relative to the ancient world or even the, the early modern world, the world is on the march. People are moving more than they ever have, and they're moving to more places than they ever have. And this is, um, I mentioned last time, like the Hungarian populists are you know, trying to keep their young people at home. And notice, if your sense of here includes you know, your young people, your younger relatives, your siblings, and they move to someplace else, it actually changes your here. Your here has been transformed. Even though you stayed, your here is now different because those people left. And if you know them and love them or familiar with them, now you're connected to this other here, which is, you know, there. But it's not your here, really. And so it gets confusing very quickly. And most people in, in the United States and in many parts of the world have had many places that they've lived. And so they have many sort of connections to remote locations that sort of make a sense of here. But, ah, oh, you know, but it's not really the same. Uh, and then you have the, it, sometimes if you go back, they say you can never go home again. And the notion is, oh, if you go back to where you were and you see all the changes, you realize you have that, oh, I'm remembering a place that did exist, or at least existed for me, and now when I visited it, what I've discovered is it's familiar, but also unfamiliar, that it hasn't been, you know, stopped. It didn't just wait for me to come back and visit, and then everything start up again. It's been changing and dynamic and ongoing, and so, you know, people talk about this, oh, you get this sort of disorientation sometimes because you're visiting a present that you had associated with your past, and now you realize that there's tension here. And if you do this continually, notice that you've lost a sense of continuity with your own past. We'll talk about the, the, the now next, but, but your own sense of place, right? If you live with those changes and they're organic to you and they're familiar with you, okay, well, you're, you, you're up to speed. You know what's happening. You, you've incorporated that into your life, into your day-to-day -day existence, into your recognition. But the constant change and the constant exposure to other places slowly can undermine completely any sense of being anywhere at all. And, and it's not to say that you want a really narrow sense of here, but it is to say that you have to have some sense of 
location, some sense of where your environment is, what it extends to, if you're going to have a sense of identity, because it's hard to think of ourselves simply floating free as, you know, a, a, a unit, a tiny, tiny speck of light in the universe. But we want something a little more comforting than that. How do I know when I'm not at home? How do I know when I'm not in my neighborhood? How do I know when I'm not in my environment? And it's, it becomes increasingly challenging as the world becomes more mobile and more fluid, and we are exposed to increasing amounts of uh, percentage of the world's population. And so who are my neighbors? Right? How do I calculate a neighbor in a world in which, A, there, I might live in a, a block that has 20,000 people on it. I can't know that many. Which of them do I, do I count the people on my floor? Are they my neighbors? Perhaps my whole building becomes my neighborhood. Perhaps I just become neighbors with people I see regularly, which is almost no one where I am. And so I have this disjointed sense of a few isolated locations in a larger urban environment where I know people. And so those people are my quote unquote neighbors, even though I don't know where they live and I might not live next to them at all. And so we're having to reconstruct whole senses of environments in, uh, uh, under speed with, you know, as these changes are occurring. And so it's very disorienting. Uh, and this, people talk about this, right? I, you know, I want to feel like I belong someplace. I want to live someplace with a community. Part of a community and part of a belonging is to know where you are and where you're supposed to be. And of course, we also do not want to be hedged in and we don't want to be limited. So it's that great, but which is, which is great too, you know, human freedom and opportunity. This is, again, back to what the Enlightenment was about. But if you don't have any limits and you don't have any boundaries, then you don't have any place. And so you feel like you don't have a sense of identity and, and belonging because, yes, you're right, you're, you're not anywhere. If you're everywhere, you're nowhere. If you're somewhere, you have to have some sense of how to define that huge problem. Um, and of course, you can go on about this, but I think it's fairly obvious. I just don't think it's very often underlined in terms of how it undermines our sense of identity because it doesn't allow us to have a sense of place that reinforces or reaffirms or at least comforts us within the context of our existence. Um, and then the, so it's be here. So be, you know, being, wow, here, boof, now, we don't, if we knew where here was, half our problem would be solved. This is why it's a question and not an answer. This is why it's a uh, philosophical beginning, not an end to anything. And then there's the now. <sighs> now has also been getting very strange. Uh, again, we don't, the evolution of this is perfectly clear. Essentially, early peoples didn't have any sense of time as we understand it today. They understood seasons. They understood cyclical things. And they thought of the world, as far as we can tell, cyclically. That, you know, it, it, things weren't advancing. We weren't going someplace. The future was going to be like it is today, except for it's going to be warmer or colder or the that crop will be coming in or those animals will be migrating through and we can eat them. You know, however, whatever the cycle was of that community or, or that group. But they did not have this notion of, oh, I'm living in this big expanse of time and I'm at one moment of it and there was a thousand moments before and there's going to be a thousand moments after on a line. And I think more or less that's what the modern conception of time, and we have these things called timelines to do this. Well, when am I supposed to be? And like I mentioned before, the timeline was a thing that was invented, which I think is great, uh, but... You know, how do I know 
when I am. How, where is my when? And, and how do I know that I'm supposed to be there? And again, back to our primate ancestors, they had a sense of past. And we know this in part because they understood the relationships. So if you were the um, son or daughter of, um, particularly with the mothers, of a mother who was high status, even if the mother died, you tend to maintain that status, or at least it helped elevate your status, which meant that the tribe was used to and remembered to a certain extent the past. Whether, whether they thought of it in those terms, you know, we don't know. It's hard to tell from the outside, but it's clear they behaved as if, you know, they had a recollection of, of how things were. And I mentioned the story of the alpha male that tried to reintroduce himself and but tried to come in as a higher status. And it's pretty clear that they understood that he used to be the alpha male. They remembered this and that he was a threat to the new alpha male and, and, and partners. So they, you know, killed him because he was trying to, to, to get uppity. And so that sense, they have some sense of history um, and they must have some sense of the future because they do a certain amount of planning. And again, this varies from, you know, group to group. And certainly our early ancestors did. They, had, they knew the, some sense of the future. They had, a, you know, a solid sense of the past, but in a cyclical sense, like I said, rather than a timeline. But the, our sense of time has slowly been expanding and expanding and growing. Um, if th this is the old notion of dating the earth from the Bible. So you want to date the earth from the Bible. So you count the generations and you find out the world is something like 7,000 years old. Now, 7,000 is a big number, but it says, oh, here's a finite date in the past. And we know where we are in time. And people love this idea. It was very popular when they started doing this kinds of researches and trying to, you know, time things out and create these sense like, okay, we know where we are. We know what the beginning was. And by the way, we, we know what the end is because we have the narrative. So this is not history necessarily in the sense that we think of it. It's the acting out of an idea that's already been written and known. And the idea is like, where are we in this story? Oh, we're here. We're at the 7,000-year mark, so it's probably only going to be another few generations before this whole thing wraps up at the end of the, of the story. And Christianity has this. Lots of other religions have this notion. That, uh, and so people could locate themselves. In the Greek world, they had the notion of the uh, Golden Age, the Silver Age, and the Bronze Age. And it's this decline, the decline of, of civilization. And so they knew where they were because everything was getting worse and worse. And so that, that was the narrative, and that's where they were. And, uh, of course, the Indian civilization famously had the very cyclical and these long, long, unimaginably long, uh, the Jains in particular had like, you know, billion year times a billion year times a billion year cycle that creates, you know, this huge number. And then everything starts over again. Um, again, so it was cyclical, but you could kind of figure out where you were and what was going on. So what we've done um, is we've said, oh, okay, 7,000 years? No, how about a million years old? How about 10 million years? How about, 100 million? how about the earth is 4 billion years old? Great. I mean, on one hand, unbelievable, mind-blowing, fascinating, amazing that we can work this out. But how much of that is supposed to do with me? Like how much of the history, and history being that great subject, that core humanity, the subject of the humanities is history, Um you know, it happened long ago. D does this have something to do with me? I mean, uh, am I, I'm, part I'm in history, sort of, but 
how do I place myself? How do I understand myself against the historical tapestry and now of all of humanity? Right? We have access to all of humanity's history. So we can go back. Or do I go back, like I said, I'm going back to our primate ancestors. So I'm appealing to something that happened you know, in our evolutionary tree hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. Should I appeal to blue-green algae? Should I appeal to you know, the formation of the earth? Or do we go back four billion years? When, you know, when is my now? How do I understand myself in time? And of course, we also have the capacity to think about the future, right? How far into the future am I supposed to be pondering? Now, some people will say that, and you know, be here now, uh, you know, be in the moment. And, you know, yes and no. Certainly, we can be more mindful and more in the moment in our society that's very distracted, etc. That's, I'm, you know, I'm not opposed to this concept. However, uh, one of my friends likes to say is my dog lives in the moment, right? And, and it's like, right, and it's, I think humans should strive to be better than dogs, right? Not, nothing wrong with my dog, like my dog. My dog lives in the moment, but, you know, I don't want to live in the moment all the time. Um, you know, I can remember the past. I can plan for the future. I, I like to have dreams. I like to have uh, ambitions. I like to, you know, play and call my friends and say, hey, let's get together later and have fun with them, right? So, you know, when is our now? And in a world where we have access to hundreds or thousands of years of history and we can project forward for a year, 10 years, 50 years, you know, what? What's going on? So this is the classic joke about retirement, right? You work all your life to save for retirement, a concept I really don't understand. But uh, but people do this. And, and notice what they're doing is they're behaving in the present based on a projection about the future, to achieve a goal, which is like sort of it's admirable, right? Uh, but no, so this means their present really stretches out a long ways, right? Maybe they're not going to retire for twenty years or thirty years, something. You know, wow, that's a thirty year. That means your present behavior is in your mind boxed and modified by a future of that's thirty years off, um, which is which is interesting. Great, maybe maybe good, but it makes a really big now, because you're always having to you know have play play your current decisions off against some future that you're holding in your mind relative to some past, and it makes your now kind of confusing, and it makes you also nervous about the future because who can know what's going to happen in thirty years? Answer: No one. We don't have no idea where we're going to be in thirty years, none whatsoever. But we like to plan for that. And that's one of the amazing capacities that our civilization offers is the ability to make plans that go for 30 years, which is extraordinary, but also very disconcerting because we know the world is is uncertain. We know the vagaries of chance happeneth to all men. And, 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 And so, wow, what do we do with this expanse of possible times? Where do we draw the line? How do I say, okay, this is where I am and this is when I am? As I think too little consideration is given to this. And, and, but people are desperate for this. And so this is back to identity again, the, the theoretical subject of the series. Um, so when people reach back into history, this is the ancestry stuff that I always find so uh, fascinating. The science is, of course, utterly contemptuous and dubious, but um, the narratives are great. So people love the narratives. But notice what they're doing is they're trying to establish where they are and who they are in the present by an appeal to the past, sometimes a quite distant past. 
And, and the, the notion is, oh, if I can understand my past c- correctly, then I will understand who I am in my present much more correctly. I'll have a better sense of who I am now if I understood who my ancestors were 100, 200, 300, 500 years ago, maybe, or, or more. Well, you can't go back too far because all our ancestors are from Africa. So those are your ancestors. Um, but it, it, between then is what people tend to think about. They're like, well, after the Africa thing uh, and before yesterday. So what was going on, right? And so where do you place those timelines? How do you pick when in the past you want to identify your ancestors? How far is too far back? How soon is too soon? You know, so again, that notion of time, selecting my identity from a time frame from history. Uh, it, but I'm on one hand, I, I'm not, I'm very dubious on this because the science is so weak, but I do think it's an interesting philosophy, philosophical idea to ponder, oh, I need to fix myself with an identity that has this element of time and what better way than appeal to your ancestors to say, okay, this connects me with a timeline. This puts me in a sequence that's comprehensible. You can write it down on paper. You can see migration patterns. You can do all the fascinating uh, genetic studies that they do. And so, okay, here I am. Okay, great. Now I'm not just my here is now part of a very long past. And that gives me a sense of grounding. This gives me a sense of who I might be. Um, and when I might be. Because again, if you unmoor people from any sense of the past, and we live in this cacophonous present of, of stimulation and distraction and noise and infinite opportunities to do any kind of thing we could almost imagine, it's, it's hard to have even a sense of, of now. And then people talk about, okay, when is now? William James famously did experimentation that I don't think has been subsequently proven wrong, I think it's just been reinforced uh, for the last hundred plus years, um, I guess about almost exactly a hundred years now, um, in which they did the studies and they found out that now is some time for your mind between three and six seconds, right? So if you really want to know when and now is, it's a window of about three to six seconds. Anything that's happened more than six seconds ago starts fading um, into the past. Um, and anything that's too recent, anything that's, you know, instantaneous is now, right? So so you, maybe you can hold on for something to three seconds, so maybe to six seconds, but so zero to six seconds. Um, and that's kind of your sensorial, phenomenological present. But I think when people talk about now, they don't mean, you know, the rolling six-second stream of consciousness, although, of course, this is where you get into very philosophical problems. Hume talks about it. Locke talks about it. Uh, Spinoza talks about it. Lots of philosophers talk about it because particularly a lot of Enlightenment and similar. Uh, Spinoza a little early there. But, uh, you know, philosophers who start trying to think about and understanding our sense of identity and being become obsessed with time and the passage of time and how we flow through time. And how that influences our sense of, of ourselves and our ability to reflect on what's going on around us and what we're holding in our minds. So, yeah, big problems, big problems in every direction. So when you don't have a sense of here and you don't have a sense of now, what you're striving for and trying to do, and you see this everywhere, is to try and do this. You know, when am I where I want to be? 
and when am I when I want to be? We don't tend to think of the second one. So let me start with the first one and give some examples. So think about the gated community. The gated community gives people a sense of a here. When you pass through the gates of that community and the thing goes down, you're like, okay, I am here. Or people talk about neighborhoods. I mean, in cities, people have had that tendency to like, hey, let's form neighborhoods. I mean, this is, you know, they talk about neighborhoods because this is what people do. They form groups and they can create a sense of identity based on that. Gangs famously tend to have territories. They establish territories and, it's, you know, part of it, of course, is functional so they can control territory. But part of it, I think, I would argue perhaps even a larger part of it is simply identif- identity. Who are we? We're the people who control these four blocks. That's who we are. That I mean, functionally, this is who we manifest ourselves are, who we understand ourselves. We are from a place and that place we can point to which gives us a lot of grounding and power that people who can't point to a place have. I mean, they don't, they just can't say, oh, well, it's sort of from there. And then we moved over here and I'm, now I live over there, but I don't really identify as living there. I just know I'm going to be moving on to someplace else. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, if I'm a member of a gang and I can say, hey, when you cross that street, you know, you're in my land, this is my territory. Boom, you've got grounding. This gives you a sense of identity and coherence and order in the universe because at least you know where your where is. Um, the, perhaps the, one of the things I always find a, a very disturbing element of this is when people are forced out, right, is the flooding in um, New Orleans was a horrible case of this because unlike most of the country, New Orleans had a huge tradition of location, of being local. And people apparently tended to ask, like, what high school did you go to? Because whatever high school you did went to would tell everybody a lot about you. Because, oh, we know what neighborhood you're from. And they, and they also tended to stay generationally. Oh, we're from here. We grew up here. We like it here. We stay here. And then the flooding sort of broke, not all of that, but a lot of that. And it caused this diaspora, forced diaspora of people who were unrooted from their where. And it turns out that takes a heavy, heavy toll on people. Even if where they were were relatively poor neighborhoods, they still tended to love them and miss them. Because that was their where. They felt comfortable there. They felt their homes there. They had been there. Their children were there. Their grandparents had been there. They had gone to high school there. Their parents had gone to high school there. Their kids were going to go to high school there. And then all of a sudden their high school was underwater. And, you know, and so it broke up this long fabric of communal identity based on a where. Uh, the other side of this is, is, I always find this just baffling and, and disturbing for people who have houses, even, you know, theoretically nice houses, but they won't do things to them that they say they want to do because they're like, oh, well, you know, this would hurt resale value. Um, and so even when they're in their quote-unquote home, they're thinking about it as a place they're going to move from. And they make decisions, sometimes quite important decisions, to say, oh, you know, yeah, I would like to, I don't know, put an indoor shooting range in, but that would kill resale value. I have no idea why, you know, but just crazy shit. You could do crazy stuff. I'm always surprised people don't do crazier things with their houses, but they don't because they're not living there as a home. They're like, oh, I'm here, but I'm going to be moving 
someplace else, and theoretically better, of course, but generally someplace else at some point in the future. And then that's going to be where I'll be. Then I'll be home. And so at that point, the time and the space overlap to create this sort of nightmare scenario where statistically they're correct, of course, they are going to move. And so they're planning now to not be at a where, to not be in a home, because they think in the future they're going to move someplace where that might be their home. And so they'll just delay that. And so you, here's that, you know, that's that crossing. And so, of course, they don't feel connected to a place because they're not connected to a place because of the decision they made not to connect themselves. And, and you see that, oh, man, you just see this over and over and over again in the modern world and all over the world. This is not just a U.S. phenomenon. You see this all over um, the, the world. And that sense of saying, oh, I, I'm not here, really, because I know at some place I'm going to be someplace else. And again, the, the theory is always someplace better. Unfortunately, the you then encounter the wherever you go, there you are phenomenon. But that's, a, that's another issue. Uh, and then, of course, as I just mentioned, it overlaps with the now. How do you have a now if you have no where? Right? These are not unrelated principles. Now has to happen someplace. And so if you have no sense of where, then you can't really have a, a confined, clear sense of the now. And there's an interesting project that was working on this. I think it's still going called The Clock of the Long Now. I read a book on it about, about a while ago. And I just thought it was fascinating. I did some research and I thought, well, what a cool idea. And they wanted to make this clock that cycled once every 10,000 years because they wanted to try and help humans think about longer time cycles because a lot of things that are difficult to achieve in a year are e easier to achieve in 20 years and really easy to achieve in 100 years, Right. But we don't plan for 100 years because we really don't live there. And so on one hand, I'm like, wow, what a fascinating project. What a great idea to try and get this. On the other hand, what a horrible, horrible, inhuman idea. Because the reason we don't have some sense of 10,000 years is because we don't intuit that kind of time. We have a very limited time intuition. And to create this abstract sense of vast time, I think, is part of what unmoors us. Like, oh, how am I supposed to respond to something when people go, oh, you know, global warming is going to raise the sea level by a foot in a hundred years, you know, by the end of the century. Uh, you know, that's a, so, it's probably true. No problem with the science, but as far as something that people are supposed to intuit and respond to, it's very inhuman and sort of disablingly inhuman because like our sense of time really doesn't run out that far. Our now can't really be a century. It's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's troubling. It's difficult. And, and yet, these are the kinds of impulses we get all the time. And so, when you think about a phrase like, uh, be here, now, of course, the first one is, you know, I mentioned existentialism. I mean, this is really the core problem. If we knew, if we had being down, we wouldn't have any of these problems of identity at all. It's the fact that we don't have being down. That creates the problems with the now and the here. And that the, our sense of now and our sense of here have both been um, transformed in the last 150, 200, 300 years out of all context to how space and time were experienced by both our ancestors and our primate ancestors. And as a final example of how recent this is, is um, Einstein 
uh, famously worked as a patent clerk. And one of the things he kept work, uh, seeing come across his desk while he was thinking about time and you know space and all of these crazy concepts that he revolutionized was ways to synchronize clocks. Because once the, the train system was up and running in, in Europe, parts of Europe and America, you had this problem of, well, we're going from city to city, but the clocks aren't really the same. And so we say the train is going to be there at 8.30, but the clock in that town might say 8.26, and the clock in the town uh, further down the line says 8.35. And so, you know, you can only get your trains to be so accurate because the accuracy of the clocks from city to city was only so accurate. And so people were coming up with all these systems for trying to synchronize clocks from place to place to place to create this uniform sense of time. And, and by the way, if you've ever been in large institutions or large buildings, schools try to do this a lot where they try to get all the clocks to be synced. It never works. They can, it seems to be impossible, right? You'll always go into a cloud. Oh, those clocks don't work anymore. Oh, they're out of step. Oh, this one's five minutes, right? Like trying to synchronize clocks turns out to even now is, is weirdly difficult. But back then, it was really a struggle because also these are mechanical clocks. And so you have mechanical clocks. They run, you know, without the greatest accuracy, although ooh, they could get some of them to be pretty accurate. But, you know, the big ones at the main centers of town that people were using as a reference, yeah, not that accurate. And so ooh, how do you do this? So this is Einstein, right? We're not talking a thousand years ago trying to sync time up between even relatively close villages was a thing. I mean, it, they didn't know how to do it. I mean, it was the, so everyone was trying to come up with a patent for a way to make this happen. So, you know, time was much looser, much, you know, freer, um, less constrained, but also less vast. It wasn't a million years or a billion years or 14 billion year age of the universe or, or a hundred year, a century, and then sea level is going to be up over our heads or something. It just didn't have that sort of, uh, those constraints and or that vastness. And of course, the here-ness, well, you know, that's just obviously uh, gone crazy. And people keep saying that the world is getting smaller. And I, I, I would argue, yes, this is true. At the, if you talk about the speed of travel, then the world has gotten vastly, vastly smaller. If you talk about our ability to understand the amount of places that we're exposed to, the world has gotten infinitely larger because we are now consistently exposed to hears that we do not understand and cannot intuit, but we hear about them and we're exposed to them. And so the world hasn't gotten smaller. It's gotten vastly, vastly larger and more complex. So the be, the here, and the now, all three of them, whew, we're struggling. We're struggling with those. So be here now. Next lecture will be the last one before we move into some of the responses to these problems. And we'll look at some of, well, I don't want to give it away. It's a horrifying one, but I think it'll be fun. So thank you very much.